Hello and welcome to the symposium. Today I'm joined by Connor. Hello. And we are going to discuss and debate gender. Our discussion and debate is going to have three sections. Section number one is the concept of gender useful. Section number two is transgenderism based on reason. Section number three, what to do when kids say they're trans. Thank you very much for agreeing to do this. No, thank you. And we obviously have to have these kinds of debates behind the paywall because places like YouTube don't really allow us to have these conversations. But I think they are very important, especially with the third topic you proposed, because there is a, as Lisa Littman has, has written, social contagion sweeping through civilization at the moment, claiming the lives and fertility, uh, future fertility, of thousands of children. There's been a 4,400 percent increase in adolescent, particularly autistic, and uh, abused young girls signing onto rapid onset gender dysphoria. And they are being misled by all of our core institutions. And I think, much like the grooming gangs, uh, if a civilization cannot protect its children, what is the purpose of said civilization? So it's a really important conversation. To have. Thank you. I want to say something that um, you're way more versed into the topic than I am. I have uh, specialized, let's say, in other discussions. And uh, I want to say that as far as I'm concerned, I was uh, in academia and I started hearing people saying things like that. And I, and I couldn't understand why they would think this way. So in your experience within the academy, was it the very postmodern line that, as Judith Butler has asserted, gender is a kind of performance, it's a social construct, we can opt in to one or the other or opt out entirely as we so please and any imposition of biological constraints on people is a form of oppression. Is that the kind of vibe? There wasn't a main line. Uh, there were many people who were, let's say, radical feminists. Not everyone agreed on their view of gender and re with respect to transgenderism. But, uh, you know, there were many debates going on about this. And uh, frankly, I wasn't so much involved in it. I couldn't understand the topic, but I really resented the impositions that were made when it came to teaching. So I, we were essentially told that we need to have everyone happy and you can't have everyone happy. And essentially teaching philosophy is making people very unnerved. It hasn't, it's the exact opposite than making people happy. It's, you make people unhappy because you try to show them that they don't know. It's, you know the, it starts, let's say, with uh, Socrates. You go out and you question people and their beliefs, mm. and uh, this is not a fun process for them. Well, yeah, Jordan Peterson... And it's not a fun process also for you either. I no. Mean, I don't particularly enjoy trying to say to make people see that they are mistaken or something. It's not something that I particularly enjoy, but I think that it, it is something that is part of life. Well, yeah, so, so Jordan Peterson in his recent stage tour has framed the discussion around the fact that neurologically there is no difference in the processes that your brain uses between suffering and self-awareness. So when you're processing pain and trauma, it's the same centers of the brain that are activated when you're trying to understand yourself and your beliefs. So actually by trying to immunize an entire generation from ever feeling pain and suffering, you're 
keeping them in a state of arrested development. That's why they seem like tantrum in toddlers. So Exactly. And to add, uh, Jordan Peterson has said something really insightful. He has said that if you look at artists, you see them being aware of problems that philosophers talk about later on. And you spoke of, uh, of tragedy. No, what you said uh, reminded me of Aeschylus, uh, who, sa- who I think said that w- uh, wisdom comes with suffering. Hmm. And I think that this is, this is uh, a no-brainer. It does come with suffering. And the pursuit of wisdom, which is philosophy, is the pursuit of self-awareness. It's a very painful process. It's a process that, of growth, and growth is painful in all sorts of uh, ways, not just in the learning context. So what I resented about the topic and about the atmosphere was the appearance of compassion and how far away it was from actual compassion, because you don't educate children by telling them that your teacher's job is to tell you what you already think is the case. But I think we should save that for the for part three. I don't think that there will be much disagreement yes. on part three. Let's focus on number one: is the concept of gender useful? Number two: is the is transgenderism is tra- rational? Transgenderism based on reason, which is a sort of point we picked up on the liberalism debate. Yes, contemplations one for seven, and uh, third, I think it's going to be more wholesome what to do when kids say they're trans. And I don't think there's going to be any significant disagreement there. In fact, I think we'll mostly agree on it. Okay, so let's talk about the concept of gender. Mm. Because as as I said before, I haven't thought about it so much. So is your position akin to sort of... I just want to find out from someone who has read a lot about it and spoken a lot about it and interviewed people who are prominent within the sphere. What the hell is it? So I think there are two positions, and correct me if from off-air conversations I've gotten your position wrong, but your position seems to be similar to Matt Walsh's or Helen Joyce's, which is that the gender is a social construct crowd are trying to create sort of postmodern fog, and it's decoupled from objective reality, which we can measure, which is your biological sex. And there are only two genders, but gender's kind of useless because gender is just referring to the two sexes. So we may as well just use sex to explain men and women. And trying to stray outside that sex is pointless and self-refutive and harmful. Is that about right? That's uh, part of my view, but I, I, I will okay. uh, develop it in a bit. But I, w- I want to ask you, what is gender? So. Because I'm trying to, in a sense, occupy the perspective of someone who doesn't, who hasn't read so much about the issue. Right. It's not hard for me because I haven't read much about the issue. But I want to engage in a discussion where I want to be thorough without being impolite or something. But because I want, I think that the whole discussion is a linguistic quagmire. Yes. And it's really important to pay close attention to language because language and self-conception are really tied. Yes. And uh, when we are careless about the language we use, we are careless about how we view ourselves. Mm. So I think it's very important to focus on language. So I want to ask you, what is gender supposed to be? Okay, so... Because in my mind, there are men, there are women. That's it. Yes. 
And no, it's, that's that's true. I'm very Occamist. You know, the Occam's razor, that's yes. a methodological principle. Yeah, we'll, we'll develop it. So but what is gender? You're correct. There are men and there are women. And those are the biological classifications. But when you describe a man or a woman, I don't necessarily agree with Hume's you can't get an ought from an is, but by making an observation about the nature of human beings and their gametes, you aren't telling them what constitutes a meaningful life, what is virtuous, etc. But you can derive a sort of set of social expectations that are downstream from their embodied realities. So men and women have different levels of parental investment based on one being the gestator, one being the inseminator, and they have different levels of strength and color perception and uh, neurological temperamental inclinations. And so from these factors, you can derive a sort of set of expectations that by living up to them, life is most meaningful. And that would be gender. It is your social role correlative with your biological sex. So if biological sex is the thin definition of what a woman is or a man is, then gender is the thicker definition of what a woman or a man is. They're not inseparable, but gender would be the extension of that. Ivan Illich puts it best. So Ivan Illich in this book called Gender, it's in the stack here. If you want to. You can... Yes. So yeah. Illich, Illich was a former Catholic priest and he wrote this book called Gender and he got him cancelled from academia. They called him a Nazi at the time. They made a paper mache phallus and paraded it around the campus where he was hosting a talk about it. Classic cancel culture stuff, about 40 odd years before it reaches its fever pitch right now. The epitome of tolerance. Yeah, quite, exactly. Yeah. Uh, very Marcusean of them. So Illich used the terms vernacular gender and economic sex. And he said, we live in a sexist civilization, but not sexist as in the feminists use it. He thought the feminists were kind of stooges for materialistic forces that were working towards the abolition of sex itself. So vernacular gender means the social roles that men and women inhabit within a time, a place, and a culture. So it's particular, it's constrained, and it never needs to be questioned. So you wake up, you perform your gender role, and you never need to be self-aware about your gender role, because life can't be any other way as it is. And he saw it as the hunter-gatherer to agricultural economy. And the analogy he would have used is tools. So different tools were made for different hands, because men and women have different hand sizes, different strength capabilities. So the scythes would be for men more to do with slashing, whereas for women it would be for certain kinds of crops that make it easier for them for gathering. Or men would tend to the cows because there's greater risk involved in that and greater strength requirements, whereas women would tend to the chickens because they lay their eggs in one place, it's easier to gather when you're pregnant, they're lighter to carry, things like that. How work was set up and your non-interchangeable roles within a household that were of equal importance were gendered. And they were never questioned or evaluated. And it transitions into what he calls economic sex because men and women then became abstract categories because work became more interchangeable and the domestic economy got flipped on its head. Particularly when during the Industrial Revolution, machine manufacturing was more suited to women and children because the instruments, and if anything fell through the machine, were easier to get if you had smaller hands. So the economic relationship between men and women flipped, and so they became very aware of their sex differences because of a change in how the household made its goods and earned its keep. And so gender are the embodied meaningful roles within a family relation that is correlative and downstream of your biological sex that is just a kind of lived reality. 
And the reason we've got this sort of critical consciousness raised about gender now is because we've suddenly become really aware of it because how we've lived and related to one another has changed so drastically. I know it's a very long-winded answer, but I hope that. Okay, so I have two things to raise. First is a question, because when, let's say, we approach someone who, sorry, puts forward their particular theory, we come across several notions, several isms, several, let's say, technical concepts sometimes. So to understand a theory or a position, it's good to see how these concepts are related to each other in the mind of the person who embraces the theory and communicates it. So question number one, when it comes to roles and social roles and expectations, do we have social roles and expectations be, uh, occupied by some people because they are men and because they are women? Or are they men or women because they occupy these roles? Right. In other words, let me just unpack the question because I didn't formulate it really well. Is it the case that you become a man because you perform a role, se several roles? And fulfill several expectations and you become a woman because you fulfill some other roles and some other expectations or is it that society demands some things from you because you're a man and some things from you because you're a woman so these, do you see the difference yes yeah so are you made a man because you fulfill a role or is something demanded from you because you are a man. Yes, yes. So are the roles created to habituate you into being a man or a woman, or were the roles themselves created because men and women are a certain way? Yeah. So I think they're symbiotic. I think it's more so that the roles have evolved from the biological reality of men and women. This is, you know, why tools are split up. This is also why men and women, this is a term that Nina Power uses. So Nina's, I've done a interview with her on the website, great book, what the, what the Men Want. And she uses the term sibling economy to describe how men and women have become estranged from each other because we socialize and work together too much. And so sex differences, gender differences as well, have been reduced. And so now we're more like Cain and Abel than Adam and Eve. We're like squabbling siblings fighting for the same pool of resources than we are companions with Illich's term, ambiguous complementarity. We don't quite understand each other, but we're made for each other, you know? So the, the reason I think that the roles are derived from our sort of bottom-up sex differences are because as the roles have gotten more unisex, we have both made our sex differences more cosmetic and there are more pressures on us to be more unisex biologically. It's almost like we're reverse evolving. So put it this way, how do women enter the workforce? Well, they couldn't as much as men before because of menstruation, because of sanitation concerns, because of the burden that pregnancy placed upon them. Okay, well, the birth control pill comes along in the 60s and 70s, completely upends that dynamic. Women can enter the workforce en masse because they can, and because the government starts earning more tax revenue, and the productivity spike encourages businesses to start hiring more women. The can becomes a should. 
And the relationship between men and women change because the economic relationship between them changes. And so there's a pressure to neutralize women's biology so that they can compete economically with men. So the role is made unisex, and so the human being is bioengineered to be more unisex. But you need the bioengineering for the role to be made unisex. And this is why in the 2000s to 2010s, when we had this weird sort of feminist craze, you had loads of feminists complaining what's, about what sounded like really mediocre issues. Do you remember those articles that said, the office is sexist because air conditioning is too cold for women, or because mice are too large for women's hands? They were sort of right. Like, it's a luxury belief complaint, but what we were doing was, we were inducting women into the workforce after changing their biology to be less female, and then saying they need to compete under the same conditions with men. And so they were saying, actually, we're running up against biological roles here, walls rather, and so the office itself needs to change to accommodate those still lingering biological differences so that we can basically compete equally. So all of that is to say that the issues that arose when we tried to make the economy unisex, and we've got there, demonstrate that the economy and social relations were set up around men and women's biological differences before, and the new economy is eliminating those biological differences. And this is perfectly encapsulated by the Dino class. Mr. and Mrs. Dino who go to the call center, they do the same job, right? They work in recruiting or they work in marketing. And so they sit there typing away all day and basically making spreadsheets or making phone calls. But Mr. and Mrs. Dino are the most hyper-masculine or hyper-feminine costumes you could ever see. And it's because that has become irrelevant to how you earn a living but it's still relevant to how you attract a mate. So your muscles are there for non-pragmatic reasons, or you've got fake boobs and a fake bum, not for fertility reasons, but for status and validation and all of these things. So that's how gender has become a costume, even for people who aren't transgender or aren't non-binary and the like. So there, there's a question here, and there is also a separate point to raise, because I raised the first point, and the, the second remains unspoken hmm. of yet. So you would say that we have biological males and biological females. I have a set of eyes, so definitely, yes. Yes. <laughs> and they have a different nature, or at least to a very large extent, there are different biological uh, underpinnings of their behavior. Sex difference is, I think, the oldest specification of life. Uh, it predates language or you know, <laughs> sort of like conceptual formation. It's, yeah. So the fact remains that we expect some things, some social roles from some humans because they're biological males. Yes. And we expect some other tasks from some other humans because they're biological females. Yes. Great. So the fact that in some societies these roles can change doesn't alter the fact that we have biological males and biological females. Yes. In, let's say in across time, if there are changes in roles, we don't have a change in who people are. You can change how people think about themselves, but then the success of the civilization which decouples gender from sex is less than that that maximizes gender differences. Okay, let me, let me bring the second point. Yeah, that I wanted to make. It seems to me that 
Another feature of this discussion is that we are not particularly sensitive to distinct uses of words. What do I mean by that? Is that some languages, languages are a very dynamic institution, a very dynamic phenomenon. Not every, there isn't just one function description. There are many things. I could ask you a question. Um, I could, uh, you could tell me, pass me the salt. That's not a description. Yes. So we do all sorts of things with words. And even when we are talking about descriptions, there are even many kinds of descriptions. And that's a fancy way of saying that, for instance, there is, in this case, a notion of the same term can be used in different ways. For instance, the term mother. The term mother can have a purely descriptive sense. If you give birth to human beings, you're their mother. That's the purely descriptive thing. But there's another normative sense of the notion of motherhood, which has to do with fulfilling these expectations. Yes. And one of the most usual one is, you need to be there for your children. You need to care for your children. So we could say in this case that one woman is a mother in the descriptive sense and the normative sense. But we could also say that a woman who is a mother in the biological sense, in the purely descriptive sense, isn't a mother in the normative sense if she doesn't fulfill these roles. Yes. So here, we don't need an extra word. We have the word mother, and we use it in different ways. In, the same applies for father. We could say, you're a father when you give birth to some people. You know, you do your biological part. But the normative notion of a father has to do with also caring for your children, being there, providing for the family, yeah. your wife and children, all these social roles. Yeah, not going out to get cigarettes and coming back 20 yes. years later. Yeah. Yes. So in this case, I want to draw an analogy and say that it seems to me that in, this, um, in these examples, the notion of mother and father, we have one term and and we have two distinct uses of that term. One is at least. One is the descriptive, the other is the more normative one. That has to do with expectations that people can fail to deliver, or they can live up to. Let, let, yes. me, let me formulate a question. Let us draw an analogy and go to, the, to, to males and females. Because I want to say that, personally, I think if the notion of gender is tied to roles, it isn't very helpful. And it, it is not needed, and it opens up the possibility of a discussion as to how it differs, which leads to confusion, and it could explain how lots of negative social phenomena arise. But let me just say this. We have males and females in the biological sense, but we could also use the terms male and female in a normative sense that has to do with fulfilling expectations. And that's why we have also notions like male role model or female role model. So when we introduce gender right there in title roles, it seems to me that we don't need it. And we have an extra feature, extra term 
that doesn't do any work on its own. It's essentially a synonym, but people don't know that it is a synonym. And because they don't know that it is a synonym, there's an extra uh, risk of confusion. And I want to say that the richness of a language is not its superfluity. So by just adding, it's not just an issue of linguistic rich, richness. So it seems to me that in the same way where we can distinguish between descriptive and normative uses of the term father and mother, we can use descriptive and normative uses of the term male and female. I wish we could, but there's a reason that people don't know that the two were at least once a synonym. And this comes back to Illich's idea, is that a change in material conditions has led to a change in how we relate to each other. I mean, again, I've, I've done, I think, the longest piece, at least the, the most cited piece, which you thankfully proofread, on Marx on the website. So when I say this, do not think I'm apologizing for Marx in the slightest. Evil man. But one of the observations Marx got correct, not, not the solution, but the observation, is that when technology and means of production change, traditions also change. Some traditions can be can, can seem to be rendered obsolete. That's only if you take an instrumental view of traditions, which I don't. But if you do, then if you change the premises upon which the traditions are founded, it's like the phrase, traditions are solutions to problems we forgot we had, right? If you think of them as tools, then if material conditions change, then the tools are rendered obsolete. Okay, so with a change in conditions and the change in relations comes a change in how men and women think about themselves and each other. And so sex and gender become decoupled because we start living as if sex is not a concern to us, especially in the knowledge economy, right? We live quite disembodied. Uh, a high-powered lawyer can, especially if she's on birth control, especially if her company flies her out of state in the US to get an abortion were she pregnant to get her back to the desk in time, or if the government takes her kid and puts it in a daycare center so she doesn't have to care for it, a woman can do the same job as a man in the knowledge economy. It's just about cognition and will. Her, her body is irrelevant. So because gender has been decoupled from sex, and because people live as if it doesn't exist, you, people are living in denial of reality. So gender as a category of behaviors and expectations are almost like, when Aristotle says you need to become the consonant man before you become the virtuous man, it needs to be a set of expectations that are rationally re-entered into before they become habitual again. And you actually need to make the argument of why people need to adopt these for their own good because currently all of the economic incentives are pushing you towards stripping yourself of sex. So, and, and this is when you said male role model and female role model, that comes back to your thing of, are the roles created to shape men and women, or are the roles created bottom up because men and women are a certain way? It's a bit cyclical because the roles are inhabited by men and women, and the roles are as they are because they're most meaningful to men and women because men and women are different, but they are also passed down from father to son or mother to daughter because that constitutes the sort of transition stage, the rite of passage from child to adult. And that's sort of been severed too, hence why adolescent mental health crises, hence why 
particularly among Gen Z. It's now one in four to one in five are identifying as LGBTQ. Yes, that's a lot of young white girls claiming they're bisexual for social clout, but the rise in rate of transgender identification has skyrocketed. So to come to the point of, is gender redundant? No, because the thinking of ourselves as sexed beings is becoming less and less relevant in the knowledge economy. And as cosmetic procedures and pharmaceutical interventions are ramping up, we are suppressing our sex differences. So you, you need, we've got gender whether we like it or not, to abandon it as a set of social expectations that we should convince people to adopt is to actually accelerate the dialectic that Illich says that feminism does, which is in making men and women equal, in making sex functionally redundant, and in making us all like unisex consumer and producing units. No? So I don't see how this implies a change in us, especially in the way that the notion of gender is used in the transgenderism debate, because I'll tell you something that happened in a recent conversation I had. Um, I was having a conversation with a friend sociologist. She started really woke, but she sees sense, and uh, I, I'm really optimistic about it. But uh, when it came to the issue of gender, it seemed to me that, you know, as a reflex, she said that gender is tied to role, to social roles. And I asked her, well, if your social roles change, does your gender change? She said, yes. I told her, right, you're voting right now. If suddenly uh, your country was uh, taken over by an autocrat, you wouldn't vote anymore. Would your gender change? She said, no. I said, therefore, gender doesn't change with changes in social roles. But so she's right within her own framework. And I think this is why this came up in the liberalism discussion. And this is, this is the bit that I was trying to retain from what you said before. The example of mother and father is actually a really good one. Because back when gender wasn't questioned, back when we had the constraints of economic scarcity and uh, hygiene risks and high infant mortality and all of these difficult and terrible things, to abscond your duty as a parent to look after your child risked the survivability of your tribe, your community, your nation. Right? So you did have those social roles. Those social roles weren't to be questioned. They were to be inhabited, they were to be nobly fulfilled, and your life was difficult but meaningful because of them. And then what we've got I like James Orr's phrase on this. Check out our interview with James Orr if it's up by the time this is out. The revolutionary dynamism of the scientific and liberal enlightenment revolutions meant that over time we began conflating all technological progress with goodness because it decreased suffering, it decreased privation, it increased prosperity and it extended our lifespan. So good things, right? And because of that, we began thinking of constraint, not just religious and state as it was with the classical liberals, but even towards sort of Maoist position of nature is a revolutionary enemy, the Rousseauian position of 
Uh, if you think outside the general will, then you must have been oppressed somewhere. Therefore, we'll liberate you from your own uh, false consciousness, as Marx would say. That's a, you could say that there is also a religious analogy to it. That you know you need to if if people disagree with your doctrine, you need to essentially teach them a lesson. Yeah, purge them. the apostates. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's an element to that. I do. I'm just saying that uh, if we try to talk a lot about the Enlightenment and all these movements, but, the, and but stuff, there's a reason. There's a, there's a, there's a reason. We we should have a separate debate about this. No, 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 because it it makes sense, right? So I, I do want to go on to the religious point though, because I want to talk about the Gnostic thing that people keep bringing up, um, especially on the. Everyone bit. is Gnostic nowadays. Oh, thank you, James Lindsay. We should have nowadays. We're all Gnostics. Yeah, we're all conservative Gnostics. Or whatever. <laughs> anyway, so point being, look, so. With the logic of that, the freeing of people from unjust constraints and the maximizing of their freedom and prosperity, comes that decoupling from the descriptive and normative roles, right? So it suddenly becomes unjust for you to be described and then have a normative set of expectations imposed upon you. And this is why we can now say, you, we can, people can call themselves a parent without having gone through the process of birth. For example, they want to opt, they want everything to be opt-in. So they want to opt into the role without having any dependent obligations placed upon them. You could talk of father figures, but in that case, it would be decoupled from the biological one. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah. so what, what they want... But it, that's again a normative one. So it's not, it doesn't collapse the normative into the descriptive. But they, they, they hope to eject all of the normative expectations because they conceive of any obligation as a form of limitation to their will. And so this is why gender and sex have become decoupled. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.